Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesum. Chris, how are you doing? I'm really well. I'm really well. I'm looking forward to this episode. I always do, but um, I think that there's uh, some real excitement and fun here. Um, yeah, so my mood is really good. Good. Excellent. Excellent. So, uh, as I said in our last episode, and just for you know, pure transparency to the listeners, Chris and I actually are recording this episode along with the first one back to back. So normally, we'd have some kind of back and forth banter in this space, but we um, we're exactly where we were about a, about an hour and a half ago. So, <laughs> so there's not really much to report, I think, unless. Chris, have you have you burned yourself? Have you gotten any new injuries in the past uh, fifteen minutes since we spoke last? Uh, no, it, it's all good. I, I did manage to uh, drop an unbaked potato on the floor, but uh, fortunately, baked you know potatoes are large enough that they can't really get too far. You know, True. They, yeah, they kind of they bounce a little bit, and I, I've tenderized it is sort of my expression. Uh, I don't recommend that as a as a way of preparing baked potatoes normally. It was a little bit of a, my unorthodox sort of contrarian, you know, break outside the the frame approach. <laughs> I didn't throw it down. Um, that might have been more interesting. I I just simply uh, dropped it. But um, all yeah. good, all good. Excellent, excellent. Okay, well, on that note, something that I unfortunately forgot to do last episode, but I will not forget this time is my call to action. So we'll put, we'll use this space for a call to action then. Folks, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Uh, you're uh, spreading it far and wide, and that is greatly appreciated. If you would like to send us any listener mail, because uh, Chris and I are very interested, in particular, if you'll remember in last episode, we talked about the uh, Native American with a war bonnet test pattern that was used for a sign-off screen on um, on public television. So if you guys can find anything like that or anything that's related to what we talk about and send it our way, we would be very grateful for that because we enjoy the conversational aspect with the audience and it gives us more things to talk about for sure. Um, please do share this on your social media accounts. Please do give us a review on iTunes. Um, I don't think I'll be putting these on the JDO show very much longer, but I've been cutting them in half. So if you're listening to this and it's just half the episode, the full episode can be found over at nocountrypod.podbean.com. There'll be a link for that as well in the show notes. Chris, is there anything that I'm leaving out with my call to action here? No, no, just we certainly do welcome feedback. Um, we're, we're going through a lot of material. We're, we're not rehearsing this uh, show action, really. We have a few minutes of discussion. We're, David and I are basically you know, pretty in tune and, and kind of wanting to be improvisational about how this unfolds. Uh, so that, that follow-up and, and points that we mentioned that, that catch people's attention, we really like to hear about that. Uh, there are a lot of topics that, that certainly deserve some more research, some more insight. Maybe we touch on something that you know a lot about. Uh, I find that that's what excites me when, when someone mentions something. And I think, oh, I, you know, I really, you know, I, I want to be in that discussion. That, that, that's really important because underlying this this whole uh, endeavor of ours is really a desire to build community at a time in in history when uh, 
uh, intellectual and cultural companionship is very hard to find. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. So yeah, please do send those our way. Uh, we will respond to some of them at least on the on the show. Um, yeah, the way that Chris and I organize these episodes, in case anyone's curious, is that you know we do talk for a few minutes beforehand. But what we do is we kind of set up the general guideposts of what we're talking about, and then it's this sort of free flowing, jazzy, improv thing. And I think that adds a lot to the show. I think that that's what people really respond to. You know, it's not a a sort of rote repetition um, or recitation, I should say of facts and information, you know, it's kind of us sort of doing our thing. So if you send us stuff, we'll have more stuff to rip riff on as though we, you know, as though we don't run our mouths enough. Right. But, but, uh, Chris, we just got done talking about some stuff, but what are we going to talk about now today? Okay. Well, we, we positioned this theme of the diet of illusion and, and it's, it's part of a, a broader inquiry interrogation of the modern age, modernity, um, and how human culture, but particularly Western culture, and I think we could say American culture leading the charge, has, has moved more and more completely into a virtual fantasy make-believe world uh, relative to, you know, not that long ago, you know, really the early 20th century for sure. But coming out of our discussion of, of the media, and um, David, you gave us a good time frame about sort of how that evolved. We, we, didn't, we skipped sort of the radio era, and we may come back to some of these points in, in a third episode. But I think what we're talking about um, with this one is really the driving force behind mass communications, which is advertising. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to kick off with um, one little interesting fact that I think is is very curious. It, it came to my attention when I uh, started my um, time in advertising, um, and I worked for uh, a regional um, Australian Pacific office of one of the biggest multinational agencies before I, um, with my art director partner, launched my own agency, which I ran for uh, many years. But here's an interesting fact, Uh, because everybody in advertising wonders how effective brand building, we hear that term, you know, brand identity, brand building, how effective is that really? How scientific is advertising? Its greatest practitioners insist that it's not scientific at all, it's at best an art form. But when it comes to convincing people, persuading people, actually influencing purchasing decisions. Consider this. This was a major, major market survey. It was found that people deemed the General Electric Food Blender their number two brand of choice. Well, that sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Mm. But there's a problem. General Electric had in fact stopped making that product 20 years, 20 years before the research study was done. Mm. And I find that a very, very interesting uh, point about human behavior. Um, So here are people saying to market research folks, 
that, yeah, my number, my number two choice is the General Electric food blender. <laughs> and of course, they couldn't actually make that purchasing decision, except really at a kind of garage sale, you know, because <laughs> it wasn't on the shelves, you know. Um, and I think that's an interesting way to begin. So I'll throw that one out there. But I've, I've got some really, uh, I don't know, some fun stories, because this is something I've been really interested in, and something I've tried to do, you know, at a pretty high level. Excellent. Awesome. Well, what I have on my end, if you'd like to start out here as well, is I have some advertisements from the past that are advertising some very um, strange things, right? So maybe some misguided advertisements, but I wonder how effective these were in their day at getting people to, you know, buy these products that we now know are quite dangerous. So I thought this might be fun. You want to go through these with me? Sure. Okay, excellent. So the first one depicts a, a 1950s era housewife who is dancing on a stage with a dog, a chicken, a smiling potato, a smiling cow, and an absolutely terrifying smiling apple that has this grotesque stick body, right? And they are singing a song, and the song says, DDT is good for me. So... <laughs> I've always thought that. That's what I was told. <laughs> There's another one that has a smiling baby on it, and it says, no flies on me thanks to DDT. Black flag, long preferred by housewives everywhere for quickly killing flies and mosquitoes on contact, now does double duty. The amazing DDT ingredient, now in black flag, stays on walls, floors, doorways to keep on killing flies for weeks. To use wonderful DDT <laughs> safely and effectively in your home, use only a well-known and reliable insecticide. Ask for black flag. I thought that was so disturbing and sinister that, you know, that that note that it stays on your walls for weeks and weeks on end. Yeah, it's like lead in the pipes, isn't it? Well, you can it, it, isn't it interesting that Black Flag would become the name of, you know, a, a pretty famous punk band? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Well, you know, insect stuff. I mean, that just makes me think of, uh, you know, Raid raid insect spray you know uh and this is on the topic too of, of, of famous artists who have worked in advertising and i've got a whole bunch of examples but people may know or have heard of the poet lou welsh who was a um a beat poet who famously uh was staying with gary snyder at his cabin in the sierra foothills and in the midst of depression, uh, one morning just walked out of the cabin and was never found again, believed mm. to have shot himself. Mm. But the, the mythology is that Lou Welsh, when he was living in New York and he wasn't driving a cab for a living, he actually worked in advertising and he worked on the Raid bug spray account and is in mythological circles credited with the tagline, Raid kills bugs dead. <laughs> you know i mean and that's the beauty of i mean advertising speak you know raid right. kills bugs no raid kills bugs dead dead you know? so dead. we've got that you know remember in an earlier episode we talked about and it's kind of it, it's the key uh 
sort of oscillation uh, within advertising. You either go for fear or sort of hope and promise. You know, mm -hmm. it's the dark mm -hmm. side versus the positive side. Yeah. And with those DDT ads, we get a beautiful <laughs> confusion of them where, I mean, I, I almost see it like a kid's party, you know, spray mm -hmm. me with DDT, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned lead in the pipes, which leads me to the next thing. So this uh, is a coloring book that has a young man with blonde hair and what looks like a train conductor's cap on with a bucket of lead paint. <laughs> And there is a smiling light bulb, a smiling shoe, a toy soldier, and a smiling plate. And the book is called The Dutch Boys Lead Party, which also <laughs> would make a great punk name. That's fantastic. <laughs> and, yeah. And inside, some of the rhymes here are, uh, the first one at the party was gay electric light. He said, I'm very brilliant. I always shine at night. A pair of rubbers entered, as in boots and took the Dutch boy's arm. They said, we are protectors who keep you dry and warm. And through the whole thing, he's carrying Dutch boy white lead paint. And the idea is that you color this in and uh, it's, a, it's a huge advertisement for lead paint. Um, all this marketing, by the way, to children really makes me think of the Saturday morning cartoons that I would watch that would advertise things like, you know, Gogurt like yogurt with sugar in a in a plastic tube that you kind of sucked out or ice cream or Nickelodeon Gak. This is a different generation from yours. Are you familiar with Nickelodeon Gak? I I I am. Yes, I am. Okay. I, I I wasn't directly sort of in the the front lines of exposure of that. Um but I would just like to, you know, I think that what we're saying with children's products is it's really just sugar taking different forms. <laughs> oh, we'll get to that. Oh, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. I have sugar on here too. But first, here is an ad for Nicotime Cigarettes. Features a smiling woman with a cigarette. Um, and the ad tagline says, the smooth taste expectant mothers crave. And she is pregnant while she's smoking <laughs> a cigarette. More doctors <laughs> recommend. <laughs> <laughs> there, yeah 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 and then uh two more here um it's got a physician on this one and he's holding a pack of camel cigarettes there you and go. it says uh uh give your throat a vacation smoke a fresh cigarette camels nine out of ten physicians recommend then this one lucky strike not to be outdone 2679 physicians say luckies are less irritating quote it's toasted your throat protection against irritation against cough. So, all right, we have apparently um, cigarettes were marketed as anti-asthmatic uh, remedies, right? As something that could actually help your throat if you were struggling to breathe. Which brings us to, where did I put these? Yes, here we go. I have a, a whole bunch of uh, sugar ads. I won't go through all of them, but these are from the uh, late 80s, early 90s. So this ad features an attractive woman suggestively licking an ice cream cone. You make whatever associations you want in your own head. And it says, sugar can be the willpower you need to undereat. Another one has a 
woman biting into a cookie and it says sugar keeps your energy up and your appetite down and finally why so many weight watchers find sugar the spoonful of prevention what prompts weight watchers to take sugar in their beverage and a light dessert now and then it may look like cheating but they're really making their diet easier to stick to that's because sugar helps prevent you from overeating. It satisfies your appetite much faster than other foods. With sugar in your diet, you're happier with smaller portions of everything. Try it and see. Okay. Okay. Um, so there are tons of uh, kind of fun issues here about what exactly is being pushed, right? But what a lot of people don't know is that in 1972... Um, it came out that all of these companies, uh, uh, these, these prominent sugar companies had actually paid physicians to place the blame for obesity and many other, uh, ailments that, you know, come from obesity, such as diabetes and heart conditions on fat instead of sugar. And I think that if you were to ask the average person who, you know, no judgments here, but who might, you know, drink a 12 pack of Dr. Pepper every day. If you were to ask them what causes obesity, what makes people fat, it feels logical to say that fat is what does that, right? And I think that that is something that this ad, that's, that's one of the unfortunate side effects of some of this insidious marketing um, is that people don't realize that it's the sugar in the things that they eat that are causing all of these weight problems, all of these health problems. And I wonder how long it takes after decades and decades and decades of brainwashing, right? Of children's, uh, you know, Frosted Flakes commercials, Lucky Charms commercials, et cetera, to get it They're out of your head. delicious. Damn. <laughs> I always thought that Lucky Charms were disgusting. I could never, I've never had a sweet tooth, thankfully, which is probably why it's, it was easy for me to get off of the, um, the sugar train to a large extent. Uh, I'm not, I wasn't so lucky with nicotine, unfortunately, but, um, but yeah, no, I wonder how long it would take people to kind of deprogram from this advertising. This is very powerful picatrix style image magic that has been perpetrated, uh, specifically on the American populace for the past hundred years. And it feels like it has birthed a generation of people who are not only susceptible to advertising, but who are kind of like little mimetic uh, uh, mirrors of advertising. Like we become ads ourselves in a way, uh, which is maybe a bigger idea that we can explore later. Well, that that last idea is certainly true. Um, I, I have a couple of, of different points of view on this. Uh, one is that when we talk about specific discrete ads, whether they be in print or radio or television, one of the theories uh, behind the development of, of that form, in other words, explicit advertising, if you like, is that it was a way of distracting audiences from a deeper underlying constant form of advertising in terms of product placement, uh, hired endorsements, uh, those four out of five dentists, those nine out of 10 doctors. Um, and 
I have an interesting story about this, and I hope it comes off with the right tone because I certainly don't mean to be condescending. But um, uh, in my main marriage, my in-laws were, were very um, humble, down-to-earth people. They were, they were people from another time. They had lived very quiet lives. Uh, my father-in-law had been in the same job. He, he polished lenses for uh, making you know, glasses. Um, he had been in the same job for 30 years, very innocent soul. And uh, he and I were painting uh, uh, one of their rooms once I was helping out. And we were listening to uh, the big radio show that was on then in Australia. John Laws was the, the talent. And he was, he'd been on for years since the beginning, you know, really of serious uh, commercial radio in Australia. Uh, older guy, very, very rich, huge collection of cars, major celebrity. And uh, he did a long sort of spiel uh, for Toyota trucks. And my father-in-law was painting beside me, and I was painting the ceiling with a roller. And he said, you know, isn't it great how John Laws, he called him Lawsy, as, as Australians do, you know, is, so, is really a, a loyal supporter of Toyota. And I dropped my roller because it was a known fact that uh, amongst John Laws' many endorsements, he was getting paid $2.5 million a year to promote Toyota. And right. when that contract ran out, he started promoting uh, Mitsubishi vehicles. My father-in-law just could not accept that. It was mm. just, I realized I had just reached an innocent boundary you know right just right. no cynicism no just no street smarts at all a sweet summer um, child yeah yeah and so there is that sort of side of people and that in turn makes me think of a great advertising story which this is really true it it was originally run in 1949 and then it was recycled to great success again 20 years later in 1969 it was a very small magazine ad but run very very widely it had a line and it had a, a, a postal address so you could send your response and the line was simply last chance to send a dollar hmm. it was phenomenally successful hmm. so you have this incredible credulity naivete and perhaps just i don't know thick-headedness that that advertising you know managed to uh you know to to build on i mean it's kind of the the old thing you got two tens for a five you know that was what, that's so kind of the, it, the that's all it said it just said last, last chance, chance to, send a dollar? to send a dollar and on both occasions wow. it it the it, it it pulled in the 1949 one was phenomenally successful and pulled in like 200,000 bucks you know wow. and 200 grand then would, would you know was yeah. really that was a lot of money you know right. the war was over times were booming but they weren't booming that much yeah. um so that's really really strange but you know the idea of this and i think that a lot of the well the the, the great uh, pioneers of the golden age of advertising, Bill Bernbach, David Ogilvy, and Leo Burnett, mm -hmm. all said that that you know the real test of advertising 
was uh, cigarettes, alcohol, cars, uh, sugar cereals, and um, women's beauty products. That those were, mm -hmm. you know, if, if mm -hmm. you could handle that, you could really do the whole thing. And Bill Birnbach was sort of the most, uh, he, his book on uh, the art of writing advertising is still a very interesting book for anyone uh, who's a writer um, or anyone interested in cultural studies. Um, he, amongst many other things, he, he's one of the bees in DDB, which is one of the, uh, the big agency that I work for, huge multinational, you know, one of the biggest media empires in the world. He was famous for the Volkswagen commercials, Think Small. He really, mm -hmm. his, he personally wrote those, and he always wrote on yellow notebooks with, a, with just a basic pencil. Um, and he really forged the, the Volkswagen reputation in America in the 1960s. I mean, that became the Beetle, the Volkswagen Beetle, became a hot, cool car to have to a large extent because of those, um, his campaigns. But one of his lines, which is really interesting, and I mean, I think he sincerely believed it. He said, the most powerful element in advertising is the truth. So index that against the, the Dutch boy, you know, <laughs> lead paint, uh, yeah. the camels that, you know, help your asthma. I mean, what, how do you reconcile that? line and let's give him the the benefit of the doubt and say that he was sincere about that i think that people's self-delusion knows no ends I <laughs> well think, said well I, said i think i i have members of my family who have been in the u.s military who've worked for military intelligence um, my grandfather was fond of saying you know well, if you don't want the government to spy on you don't have anything to hide um you know, my, uh, some people in my family who I, you know, I won't, I won't kind of out them, you know, they, they've worked in some somewhat, you know, predatory financial situations too. And when you talk to them and sort of rail at them as I would have in my kind of earlier, more punk days, uh, th their perspective on the whole thing is that what they're doing is good. I've never met anyone, in fact, now that I can think about it, who has either admitted to, but more importantly, I think, believed that they were doing the wrong thing. I think Interesting. that I think that's true. Yeah. That's that that's I think that's getting to a very important substrate of, of how advertising as a form of rhetoric and as a form of, of artistic communication really functions at a deep level. And I don't know if, if many of the, even the great practitioners really acknowledge that, but that, that I think is exactly right. That, mm -hmm. that the entry, the weak point here is, is not really in the, the, uh, the, the communications as projective messages. It's really in the human nature, the weaknesses and vulnerabilities of people. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. So when you are setting up an advertising campaign, you know, uh, I think some of us have seen Mad Men, right? Mm -hmm. um, how does take us through how this starts? Do you start by understanding the product? Do you uh, focus more on, you know, the kind of needs that it satisfies? I'd be curious to see what what that looks like from the moment a client uh a client's portfolio comes across your desk, what, what steps are you taking? 
Okay, well, that's a very good question. Let, let me try to give a, a specific sort of case study style answer. Uh, the client in this case was uh, the state of Victoria in Australia, which is one of the two major states. Um, they had an organization that was their equivalent of, say, AAA, okay, an automotive okay. services support company with a tremendous reputation in their field. If you break down, you'd want to call, the organization was called the RACV, for instance, and you'd want to call them, okay? They had very, very solid credentials and a tremendous brand reputation, but they wanted to expand and do some other things. So they got involved in financial services, which is, you know, a reasonable jump. It mm -hmm. certainly trades heavily on the idea of credibility. Mm -hmm. And one of their lead products that they wanted to go out with was a retirement fund. Okay. Mm -hmm. That was becoming mm -hmm. a really major topic in Australia that the pension, the government pension, their equivalent of social security was not enough. People needed to, to look after themselves. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that fell onto my desk and I thought to myself, okay, we've got the two poles of fear versus hope and promise. And so the idea was to develop a campaign that could blend those two. Um, Cause you needed, you know, to have something with some real, you know, some legs, as they say in the business, something that could work over time. But on the other hand, you also needed to go out with something strong. You know, you had to make a choice. Mm -hmm. So I made the choice of, and it's a, a little bit, uh, well, it was, it's kind of a little bit too relevant. Um, the, the lead image was a homeless person crashed out on a park bench under a newspaper. Mm. And, um, you know, the line was simply, will you be prepared for retirement? Mm. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. one of the, uh, so we had that on billboards. We had that in magazine ads. We had a, a television ad about people, um, different couples walking past this sort of isolated, uh, bedraggled, forgotten, um, outcast figure on a bench. And then within the uh, actual premises, because uh, they, they ran retail outlets as, as primarily for their automotive related products. But we, we set up, we had merchandisers come in and, and get a bench and we had mannequins dressed as sort of hobos. Hmm. And one of the, the um, I went to one of them at, during the launch and there was this lovely old woman. I mean, she would have been one of those people to send a dollar, you know, she was that mm -hmm. kind of person. And she was deeply concerned about the gentleman uh, on the bench in the retail facility and wanted to, she offered that she would take him home and find a place for him on, on her couch and, mm. and, and give him a good hot meal or two and get him back on his feet. And I remember looking at the, the, the manager behind the counter and he just didn't know how to explain to her that it was a mannequin, you know? Mm -hmm. It just mm -hmm. seemed like it would be shooting her down. Mm -hmm. So that was how that campaign developed. It was, um, it was based on, you know, opening up with a fear, anxiety angle, and then showing some positive results in, in smaller scale executions about how to avoid being on that park bench and the satisfaction and confidence. Confidence is probably the better way to put the hope or the positive side, 
you know, you're confident if you don't smell, you're confident if you look good, you're confident if you, you know, aren't anxious and worried. Um, so finding that sort of other balance. Mm -hmm. um, one, of, one other example briefly was with a, a major uh, sort of home appliance suite, kitchen products like microwave, fridge, gas stove. Uh, I came up with an idea of a really obnoxious robot, home robot. And uh, he just had this terrible voice that was, Mrs. Raymond, Mrs. Raymond. And he, you know, <laughs> was this absolute dithering, just fool and could never be counted on to get anything right. But of course, the gas mark products could always be trusted you know and they were because they had brand heritage you see they weren't mm -hmm. this newfangled robot who was this dithering fool um so i mean does that kind of give you some thought about that about how it those does develop? yes the first one in particular i can't help but think of performance art because that mm -hmm. sounds much closer to performance art than a typical ad would i remember when a friend of mine went to Estonia, to Tallinn in Estonia. He fell in with a group of performance artists and brought them back to Norman, Oklahoma, to do a piece at a, um, what do you call those facility? Storage facility, right? So rows and rows and rows of these garages full of people's junk. And they set up a bunch of TVs and they're all dressed in as Mad Max characters, right? And as the performance start, they set off smoke bombs and a man dressed as Jesus Christ walks out speaking into a megaphone uh, and begins, uh, basically sets it to repeat, the megaphone to repeat on the line, you know, Father, why have you forsaken me? So that begins repeating over and over again. Well, then somebody comes out with a hot poker and brands him on the back. And then there, then a, a woman with these, a woman with these pigtails tied to giant red balloons walks out, and they begin shooting those with BB guns while somebody is using a sledgehammer to smash the television, and someone else is uh, lighting a, a mannequin head on fire with a blowtorch, and then lighting a pig head on fire with a blowtorch. That feels more like what you're talking about with the homeless campaign <laughs> than an advertisement. You know, it's this deep. Uh, magic that's being sort of perpetuated. Well, you know, absolutely. And I think that's always been true. You know, there have been, there have been some great artists who have made their jobbing living with, within the world of advertising. You know, the recently ca canceled Dr. Seuss, he was actually an art director for 17 years on a bug spray campaign for a product called Flit. You know, that's, it's gone now, but he did some great work. Hart Crane, the poet, worked for J. Walter Thompson. You know, there's a lot of people who have passed through the, the advertising doors. But on, on just on the performance art thing, I do have to share one, one story of, um, this is actually in my, my big uh, Pacific Islands, New Guinea novel, but I, it, it really is true. And I, I just, I think it's just hilarious. Because of the, the rough terrain and the bizarre environments of New Guinea, advertising has often been done live as, as kind of these theater troops that go out with a message, particularly kind of public service type of messages. And 
At one point, there was concern about sexually transmitted diseases and mm -hmm, the whole mm -hmm. Planned Parenthood, you know, message. So the government hired a group of very earnest and broke Australian actors who, you know, will do anything. And actors are, they've, they've got courage and they need a gig, you know, unless they're famous. Mm -hmm. So they got this group together and it was a sex ed theater piece, which was created. And they had foam costumes, like, you know, a vagina, a penis, uh, and mm -hmm. a condom, you know, a penis and a condom, you know. And, and they were going around to villages in the highlands of New Guinea, performing this little skit or series of skits, which I think is about as gung-ho <laughs> as anybody can possibly be. That's well, amazing. They hit one remote village, not too far where, uh, from where Michael Rockefeller disappeared, but on the, the, the Papua New Guinea side. And the villagers decided that they so liked the troupe of actors and especially these costumes. Can you imagine how awful wearing a big foam ridiculous costume would be in a hundred degrees and a hundred percent humidity in the jungle? Mm -hmm. It was just, just it's, it blows my mind. Well, they kidnapped the actors. They wouldn't let them go. <laughs> and this is one of the episodes in my novel, which is in fact really true. And I, I did have some involvement in, 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 in the rescue effort. But I think that is absolutely just, I mean, I just couldn't stop laughing. And I yeah. still admire those actors uh, so much. But imagine, one other, imagine. just a little quick story, which is mm -hmm. also true, which goes back to your, your thoughts about human nature. Do you know the, the, the Japanese condom story? I'm not sure that I do. Okay. Well, in the aftermath of... Uh, the AIDS epidemic and a kind of renewed interest in condoms. And I worked for one of the big condom companies uh, on, on their campaign. We took a different sort of view. Uh, there was a problem with sales in Japan. No one was buying. I mean, it was really weird. It just wasn't mm. what it should be. Well, they, they sent a, a UK uh, market research person out there and uh, he went, okay, righto, I see what the problem is. Uh, you've got small, medium, and normal as your, as your size demarcations. Mm. He goes, that's mm -hmm. not going to work. Uh, we're going to go uh, large, extra large, and jumbo. Mm. And they flew off the shelves, you know? Amazing. Amazing. You know, it's just, you know, it's really not that complicated in the end of how we work, you know. It's... Oh, that's a great story. And I can't, to go back to your Papua New Guinea story, imagine being the person in a large foam penis costume who has been kidnapped. Imagine that person sitting there one night and just thinking, where did my life go wrong? Exactly. Exactly. Some, you know, you know, suddenly dinner theater in Brisbane doesn't sound that bad. And so it, it just reminds me, it goes on to this day, Mayor Lori Lightfoot in Chicago is sort of notorious for doing these 
goofy presentations at press conferences she you know she'll put on a big cowboy hat and be the census cowboy to get everybody to fill out their census when covid hit she dressed up as i think batman or robin or something and it was like the covid defender very embarrassing kind of stuff that i don't think was very well received but you know you have to wonder if it's effective right i mean there might be no there might be no floor for how low you could go to to communicate things to people um well that's true you know i mean how much humiliation you know can someone stand and and does that actually have have an impact i mean this is of course the big question across the whole a history of advertising is what what actually uh works you know large um, extra large and jumbo that's what works yep that's that does that does <laughs> and you know we we forget to, you know one of the things that that i've been very conscious of is that uh you know advertising goes back to some of the the really basic levels of language i mean think about a lot of surnames or last names they're they're ads forrester smith boatwright you know mm -hmm. cooper you know shoemaker yeah yeah they're they're all business cards effectively um I mean, I was interested, you know, when I uh, went to uh, the big exhibit about the, you know, the ruins of Pompeii, um, you know, one of the things that survived was an ad, uh, another cup of session wine, you know? Mm. So, mm. I mean, ads have been with us, you know, from, from the very beginning, but I think it is the, the ads that seem to really work are the ones that address those deep personal anxiety fears. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't know if people know Henry Miller's uh, great nonfiction book, The Air Conditioned Nightmare. It's published by New Directions, as a lot of Henry Miller's stuff is. Uh, I absolutely recommend it. He is on a rant. He was living in Paris. This is before. This is around uh, World War II, and he makes a, his first trip back to America in, in quite a long time. Starts in Brooklyn, does a whole tour. And in Cleveland, in a hotel, or Cleveland or Pittsburgh, uh, he just goes absolutely berserk at the advertising and the whole, this concern about body odor and how clean our teeth are and on and on and on. And it is just absolutely hysterical. It's still mm -hmm. funny today. You know, mm -hmm. great, mm -hmm. great read. Well, from there, I'd like to go in two different directions, and they're both equally appealing to me, and I'm wondering which one I should go to first. Um, I want to talk about perhaps the more sinister side of advertising and uh, news media, particularly the CIA involvement in it, because I think that's an important note to add in there. But then I also want to talk about the ways in which advertising has seeped its way into news media through sponsored content, kind of where we are now. Probably the CIA should come first because that predates the kind of advertising that we're seeing so explicitly now. I mean, we're so through the looking glass that you don't even have to pretend that you're not on the take for somebody. So... Just real quick, I encourage all listeners to Google Operation Mockingbird. Are you familiar with this, Chris? Yes, this, yeah, that's yeah. good to bring up. Yep. 
Yeah, so Operation Mockingbird uh, began in the early 50s, 51 by most accounts. Um, it has its roots in some earlier um, uh, OSS-style uh, operations, which is the, the precursor to the CIA. When Alan Dulles uh, became you know, chief of the, the brand new CIA, one of his first moves was to initiate Operation Mockingbird, which was very specifically... Um, in in the Cold War, at least, was very specifically involved in propaganda, pro-American propaganda, through film, TV, and the news media, right? And uh, famously, Rolling Stone had an article in 1977, before, obviously, before they themselves became co-opted by the whole thing, uh, kind of blowing the lid off of all this. And they had a, a list of journalists, including some pretty prominent ones at the time, I wish I had it in front of me, but the name Alsop comes to mind, A-L-S-O-P, who I believe they said had written over 300 CIA-sponsored articles about all sorts of things, basically. But he was on the take, and he was writing with a very decided slant towards uh, pro-American interests in our imperial efforts around the world. And the important thing, I think, to keep in mind about Operation Mockingbird is that it was never officially uh, put to bed. It never actually stopped. And so you see t today manifestations of some uh, prominent conspiracy groups, most notably QAnon, which has gotten some media attention, believing that uh, sort of any news that they think is fake, you know, fake news has become a big part of the American lexicon in the past four years. They believe it to be a part directly of Operation Mockingbird. Right. And right. I think it's I think it's important to not uh, simply say anything that you don't like in the news is is CIA propaganda. That doesn't exactly work. It's kind of one of those things where, you know, uh, I know that it's evil because it's against what I believe in, which is good. And I know that that thing is good because it says that it's good. Right. Um, but I just think it's important to, for people to keep in mind that, you know, the CIA was sort of instrumental in the creation of MFA programs, right? Iowa, um, yeah. Yeah, Iowa was a direct CIA operation. They call them psychological operations or PSYOPs, right? And, um, and of course, you see it all the way up through today in Hollywood. Most famously, it, this guy always comes to mind, but Jim from The Office, uh, John Krachinski, is currently playing Jack Ryan in an Amazon uh uh, series based on the Tom Clancy novels, and every interview that he does is essentially just propaganda for the CIA. He just spends all of his time talking about how amazing it was to work for the CIA and how they keep us safe in the world, and um, and it is of course a story about a CIA op who is, you know, kind of putting out uh, terrorist threats across the world, which, in a sort of rambling way, leads me to think about the show Twenty Four, right? which 24 was notoriously used uh, during the war on terror to plant into the minds of Americans the idea of the ticking time bomb, right? Of the uh, terrorist who has information about an attack that is going to happen, that you, you, know, you have to get the information out of him. So Kiefer Sutherland's character has to torture them in order to get the information. And that was used, I think, it, as a way to... Um, get Americans used to the idea of places like Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib 
and the kind of horrific torture that we perpetuated for decades under this kind of war on terror umbrella, right? So there is a, there is definitely a dark side to all of this advertising stuff. On the one hand, it's companies that are interested in making money. Uh, and then on the other hand, there is the state that has a, a particular agenda, a, a particular um, consent that it wants to manufacture. Well, absolutely. You know, I, I, there are so many things in, in what you've just run down. Uh, well, for starters, I mean, I, I think the CIA uh, could be a, a whole subject of, of a series. It, I mean, it could, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just personally in love with the whole, uh, you know, here I, I, I missed it, you know, in terms of I, I was a kid or not even born yet, but the, the 1960s, MK Ultra, San Francisco LSD uh, experiments, all of the completely unauthorized psychology experiments that they managed to get some very senior academic, credible uh, doctors and psychologists involved in. I mean, almost the problem with the CIA is, is you just can't put anything past them because the things that we have heard about and actually have some documentation about are simply just so beyond the pale it's well mm. what what could you not put past them you know it's just yeah. like i mean it's it's just there's a absolutely there's a great outrageous there, there's a great paper whose 25th page just got uh declassified and we will have to do a whole show on this but it is about the cia's investigation into astral projection and yeah. it's it's mind-blowing it's but they've done stuff where they've had people uh, you know, astral project onto the surface of Mars two million years ago. Um, really kind of far out trippy stuff. So I think you're right. I think it is a, a big subject, but I just wanted to add it as a footnote here in our advertising episode, because I, I think it, it's, it is important to see how these things can get, you know, co-opted by, by sinister forces. But, but here's the thing to, 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 kind of both complement and counter that um, because I, I think sinister and insidious are two words that I love. I mean, I, I always prick up my ears when I hear them. Um, think of like one of the other uh, great giants of the, the golden age of advertising. When we had three networks, we had a quite a, a, a real suite of uh, communications uh, media to choose from, newspapers, magazines, radio, uh, TV, in cinema advertising, billboards, you know, it was kind of a, a huge spectrum of possibilities, but still manageable, much more manageable and coherent relative to today. Uh, Leo Burnett, along with Ogilvy and, and Bernbach, was sort of the, the, the third of the great geniuses of the time. And uh, he was based more in Chicago than, than uh, Madison Avenue, New York. But, I mean, he personally created Tony the Tiger. You know, mm -hmm. sugar, frosted flakes, or what? They're great. They're With like great, five R's. said yeah. by a tiger saying that. You know, he uh -huh. invented the Marlboro <laughs> Man. The Marlboro Man. I mean, if that's not kind of insidious, I'm not sure what is. Fly the sure. friendly skies of United. Well, hmm, okay. 
you're in good hands with all state. I mean, he was just this fountain of commercial creativity. And it's easy to kind of look nostalgically back at that. I mean, I, Tony the Tiger, just you kind of have to like him because he's just a likable cartoon figure. I'm not sure about the Marlboro Man so much, but I hear that that music, you know, I hear the theme song to it and I think about, oh, American values and being out on the land and all these things. And I just I think, wait a minute, is any of that real? No. No, of course and not. How does that relate to cigarettes? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> it doesn't. So even outside the CIA, I mean, the CIA actually looks kind of charming in an innocent, bumbling, foolish way because they were trying to co-opt and leverage some of this talent and some of these techniques. But but really, someone like Leo Burnett was in a league all his own. You know, what couldn't mm -hmm. he sell? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's, that's definitely... Oh, where do I go from there? I think that from there, I would like to move into the kind of uh, ways that the advertising has shifted in a bit. Does that sound cool? So like yeah. just kind of, kind of shifted. Okay. So one thing that I think is very interesting, considering our earlier episode, our previous episode, where we talked about the native American in the war bonnet, uh, as the, as the kind of holding test pattern, when stuff went off the air, there's now something called native advertising, right? And native advertising is where messages are kind of hidden within articles uh, with full disclosure, right? You'll see on a, on a website like BuzzFeed, this article is brought to you by Crest Toothpaste, right? And it will be a listicle about, you know, 10 times you were going on a date and your breath totally killed the, you know, the mood. And these advertising articles, these listicles are buried within, well, I struggle to say legitimate uh, articles, but you know what I mean, right? I do. I do. Although that Not, word legitimate is so tainted. <laughs> it's, it's, it's tough for me to do that. So I'm thinking about a friend of mine who's in Hollywood who was attempting to sell a pilot. Now, this is somebody who's worked in TV for the past decade. So, you know, he goes to meetings, like two or three meetings a week, and, you know, he's just shopping this pilot around. And he says almost every time he will give his pitch. They'll tell him that was a fantastic pitch. And then they'll tell him, we are in the business of storytelling and you seem like a real storyteller. So here is what we are working on now. And he said, it is all ads, right? TV shows based around car companies, TV exactly. shows yep. that are based around um, fruit snacks, right? Anything that you could imagine to be sold, people are trying to create Netflix and Amazon and Hulu television series specifically related around uh, these products. So advertising and entertainment, if it was ever really separate, I'm thinking, of course, of, you know, like E.T. and the M&Ms, right? But if it, was, if it ever had a kind of separation, I feel like that boundary has been completely obliterated i think it's gone i think it absolutely is gone and i think that if we if we really 
delved into this as in sort of imagining like a, a, a whole year-long, you know, university sort of course in terms of advertising in the modern electronic era, sort of certainly from, from you know, mature radio through television, through the internet. I think that we would see that that was always really the case. It, it was a way of, we, we had a way of stylizing and filtering that attention out of our, you know, enjoyment of certain things. But really, it, it's always been there. It's just, we seem as a culture to manage to make uh, past trends all the more explicit and crass now. I think that's really the only thing that's happened. Because it, it's, it's always been there, but now we just, we've got a hammer at home. Um, because the subliminal, remember, there was a great book called The Hidden Persuaders about subliminal advertising. And it was a CIA experiment. They did a lot with this. You know, can you get someone to, uh, you know, get them to have like their mouths start salivating, you know, with, with an image, you know. Mm -hmm. And there would be hidden messages in the, the way the ice sits in a glass of whiskey. And if you looked at it right, you'd see a chicken in a bikini, you know. Right. And um, right. all that kind of stuff. Um, there was some really, maybe our listeners can follow up on, uh, there's, there was something to do with an actual commercial run with the phrase Husker Do, which I believe is a Norwegian phrase. I think it was the name of a band. Kind it of is, all in band. fact. Yep. But there, there was something to do with subliminal advertising and, and Husker Do. So maybe someone could follow up and do a little research on that and share that with us because that would be sort of fun. But I think that, you know, the problem is that no one knows what messages get through and make a difference. And so the CIA and every major marketer has been willing to throw as much mud at the wall as they can just to see what will stick because they yeah. don't know. You know? Right, right. And something that I've noticed as a listener of many podcasts, particularly comedy podcasts, I've noticed a trend in a lot of these popular shows that will have advertisers for, you know, um, knockoff Viagra and Kratom and things like that. Their ads will run for about two to three minutes and it will be the comedian making fun of the ad, right? So we've moved through the looking glass in a sense where we understand that these ads are exactly what they're doing. Everybody who listens to these shows is self-aware, but in a, in a way, in a, in a creepy way, capitalism and advertising just, just glommed onto that jadedness and made it a part of the advertising strategy. It's like, yeah, make fun of us for three minutes, but guess what? The audience is gonna be hearing about this for three minutes and that's all that matters so if that's what it takes to keep their their attention you know the days of you know don't speak ill of this particular product because they sponsor us even that's out the window they're like just talk you know well it makes me think of a, a point that you raised in our continuum of progress series about you know we were talking about sort of woke and progressive culture and the fact that that you know, giant corporations, whether it be Nike or Apple or whoever, that, and not even just specific corporations, but the oligarchy at large, whoever those shadowy figures are, 
that they have the means, the, the financial means, the, the commercial reach means, the, 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 the vehicles to, to contact audience, that they can really appropriate whatever movement, whatever trend comes along. They may, some of them may be quicker to adjust to it and jump on that bandwagon, but, but they get there, you know, and they're able, or they try in a kind of CIA sense to, you know, co-opt certain trends and, and values. Um, do you remember back, I, I don't know, I guess it was maybe, maybe even two years ago now, um, but it was, it was around the time that Me Too broke and Gillette, you know, the men's razor company. And for people who don't know about King Gillette, who, who founded the company and actually invented the safety razor, I highly recommend researching his speculative sort of science fiction novels. He had some very, very odd ideas and was a very, very eccentric uh, corporate honcho. And at a, at a major time in American history, when a lot of these brands that would become so, you know, heritage brands, when they were just getting started. Mm -hmm. But do you remember the Gillette ad? It was it was a public service announcement that went on. It was about 90 seconds or even maybe two mm -hmm. minutes. Mm -hmm. Do you remember mm -hmm. what I'm talking about? I do remember that, about leaving women alone and, you know, being, <laughs> being pro yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and like I watched that and I thought, wow, this is like a totally new era. This has nothing to do with shaving. This has mm -hmm. nothing to do with the product and delivering quality for good value. Right. This is about virtue signaling in a major way that I, I just couldn't accept it. I, I, I couldn't really buy the, the, the sincerity of it because I just didn't see it. I, I, I saw them getting completely on a bandwagon at the moment. I noticed they'd never followed up with that, I don't believe. Um, Mm -hmm. And they got a lot of pushback on it. A lot of people just said, what, what, what is this about? You know, and why is Gillette thinking they can make this, you know, it, it just didn't seem to be grounded in any kind of credibility. Um, did you feel that way at the time? Absolutely. I think it's so cynical and transparent that it's hard not to have that immediate gust, uh, gut visceral reaction to something being so clearly co-opted by a company for, um, you know, for some for some easy ad revenue, I think this really started taking off in the past decade. But it's ramped up again as everything has in the past four years, where you've seen everything from, I don't know, Doritos to uh, you know to Gillette taking stands on issues as though, you know, a company that creates a tasty chip and a and a razor that it even matters what they think about things you know what i mean it's so it's so strange and it reminds me of the fact that that recent um kind of companies have you know employed millennials to be their social media personality right and i'm thinking of something i saw on twitter the other day of the company Steakums which I'm not sure what they, they make exactly. I think it's like microwavable chicken fried steaks or something. I saw them uh, like I saw them getting into a, a heated argument with Neil deGrasse Tyson on Twitter. So Neil deGrasse Tyson, allegedly our version of Carl Sagan, I 
I think that's an insult to Carl Sagan personally. But uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Mr. Science Man, and Stakeums were were arguing about the kind about positioning science as a sort of infallible, um, godlike figure rather than um, you know a tool that is used to discern truth through um, through experiments. And I was reading this thing and I was like, well, I'll be damned. I agree with the chicken fried steak here. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. That's just beautiful. You know, it just, you really do just have to shake your head sometimes and just wonder how people, how, who's signing off on certain accounts? Who's signing off on certain campaigns? Thinking that people are just going to be forever following, you know, this just completely transparent and self-serving vested interest that is just nonsense. And, mm-hmm. you know, some of it has to do, I think, with with this profound sort of um, the mechanism, the, the, the language device of euphemism. And that uh, I was reading an interesting article from uh, a linguist who I really admire talking about euphemism as a, a kind of a conspiracy that once you fall into line with euphemism, you, you know, you start using euphemistic phrases for bodily functions. Uh, and then that extends to the room in which you, you know, you, you use or you, uh, the bodily functions get expressed. You know, Americans right. always talk about the bathroom, whereas Australians often talk about the toilet. You know, they get right yep. down to it. And mm-hmm. once you create this this culture of of euphemism, which is directly connected to virtue today, you know, mm-hmm. it's a mm-hmm. large part of what woke PC speech is about. It's sanitizing language, isn't it? It's, it is. It's yeah. really you know controlling controlling the message. And what's odd about it, you know, is it really is an interrogation of the innocence uh, and sincerity of, of an earlier era. I mean, I, I have something to uh, a little sort of dramatic reading, if, if you're ready, which I think yeah. kind of makes this point really well. I won't sing this. I think it's one of the best advertising jingles ever created. And I'm not alone in, in, in saying this. It was very much... Uh, it, it ran for sort of five years from my sort of age six to 11 sort of time frame. Very mm-hmm. simple, innocent sort of thing for one of the two major hot dog companies. Here it is. Hot dogs. Armor hot dogs. What kind of kids eat armor hot dogs? Fat kids. Skinny kids. Kids that climb on rocks. Tough kids. Sissy kids. Even kids with chicken pox. Love hot dogs. Armor hot dogs. The dogs kids love to bite. (laughs) And I think that last line is one of the best things I've ever ever come across i would be damn proud to have penned that the dog's Mm -hmm. kids love to bite yeah it's genius yeah it might have been your reading of it but i couldn't help but think to myself that that 
That's one of the best poems I've heard in a long time. Well, you know, and you couldn't find that in an MFA workshop, you know. I mean, I, I, one of the things I've done in my, my teaching, and I, you know, I've traveled around to, I don't know, 10, 15 universities in the last 10 years since being back in the country. And uh, I get people to write ads. And it's funny, my, the undergraduate students, like freshmen and sophomores, you know, they're, they're pretty good sometimes. But once you get to graduate school and MFA level, no. And, uh, and I just look at them, I say, well, you know, <laughs> I hope you do have a, I hope that memoir is a bestseller because you, <laughs> you know, you're not going to get work as a commercial writer, you know, and oh. they get really offended, you know, it's just like, well, yeah, yeah, no, the, the, I don't think there's anything quite as cutting that you could say to an MFA student than, you know, I hope your manuscript really takes off because, <laughs> We know it's we know it's not going to. Um, well, that's great. I think that's a great note to end this particular episode on. Um, what we talked about at the beginning to refresh listeners' memory is that on the next episode that we do, where Chris and I will be very refreshed because we're actually not going to record for a few weeks, um, we'll come back and we'll be talking about all of the things that we've mentioned in the first two episodes, specifically about what why it why it matters why thinking about the way that we digest uh, media and particularly advertising content, you know, what does that do to the person in 2021's brain? How does that affect our critical faculties? How does that uh, allow us to discern lies from truth? You know, I think that's one of the major questions, um, one of the major philosophical questions even of our current lives. You know, how does one deal with this constant flow of contradictory information how do you make sense out of the world when everything wants your attention and your money and your loyalty right how does that sound i think that's good and i think that there 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 are a whole range of directions that we can take this idea of the diet of illusion forward because one of the things that that is a real uh hallmark of our very contemporary period is this idea that we can somehow prosecute the past and that our social progressive values can be used fairly uh, and sincerely to interrogate past values. And I would suggest not only is that just pointless and and self-defeating, I think it's really delusional in a deep psychological sense because one of the, the, the problems with the modern age because of these media influences, we have moved through the looking glass into an artificial reality, much bigger than virtual reality in the computer sense. We're living a virtual world and a virtual life, and we have been well before the the advent of the computer. You know, the media has become a secondary stream of evolution. We've talked about extensions having an evolutionary path of their own. Well, the media has been on that from the get-go. And there's David took us through some of that timeline. And we have to really dig down to see how that has psychologically affected us. We really, really are just beginning to get a handle on that. And maybe it's too, too big for us to ever really be able to see because we're so embedded, like CNN reporters, you know, embedded yeah. in Iraq or embedded in Afghanistan. We're so embedded in modernity 
it, it's very hard for us to see out of that. But I think that uh, we will, David and I will take that on board as one of our, our tasks um, to keep looking into that. And I think with this series to extend that to some of these issues of, well, fundamental street level epistemology. How do yeah. we know what we know? Right. How right. do we have any confidence in it? And how we feel about passing that information along. Um, that will get to one of my, my big personal anthropology topics of the rumor, you know? How, how do, do rumors really move? The old Bush Telegraph idea, you know? So I think there's a lot of interesting stuff uh, to talk about. Um, but David, I'm not so you mentioned being refreshed. I, I think that I might be refreshed, but I think you're going to be dealing with a very, very new and exciting uh, development. Um, very true. So, very true. I might be a zombie. That's that's a very fair point. Uh, fair warning to everybody out there. I'll try to drink an energy drink or something. Yeah, well, keep keep your, you know, keep your good spirits up, your focus, look after yourself. It's very difficult to do that. All of the evolutionary drives are to protect this new arrival, uh, which is very, very exciting. But uh, you and Rios both have to look after yourselves and, and circle the wagons of, of family. So our thoughts mm -hmm. will be with you. We'll expect Thank a good you. a good report on this terribly exciting uh well, it's just it's just so cool. And uh, big congratulations. Lots of best wishes, you know. Thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate uh, the gift that you sent me. I appreciate also, by the way, if they're listening, the gifts that your mother and sister sent to me. Those were very lovely. And their thank you card will be in the mail. Um, we've got some pretty cool uh, dinosaur and sea creature themed Thank you cards. So which Excellent. one do you think that you think they would prefer the dinosaur or the sea creature? Uh, you know, I, I would go one of each, you know, one of each. There we go. Yeah. That's, I don't know why I didn't think of that. Yep. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. All right. Well, excellent. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. Uh, we appreciate you and we will be back with uh, the third part of this series. Yeah. And anything that comes to mind in your research is one of the things about this. These kind of topics is, you know, we all have experience. We're all very exposed to advertising, the history of communications, things that, that sort of catch your fancy, we, we want to hear about. We really appreciate it.